You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 112. Today we are asking the question, how biased are incident investigators? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray. I'm here with Dave Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we have a look at the evidence surrounding it. David, it's been a little while, but we've got some good papers stacked up, starting with this one. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Yeah, Drew, so you sent this one through to me, and um, I, I don't know what it is, Drew, you might enlighten our listeners, but you seem to have... Uh some kind of affinity with incident investigation uh, generally. And I know it was the DisasterCast podcast that got me originally really excited by podcasts. So, but it seems like you get a little bit excited when you see a new piece of research around incident investigation. Is that is that what's happening here? David, I guess I've just always been fascinated by the epistemological status of accident investigations as data about safety. It's a one of the most like sort of fundamental important things to our understanding of safety. But it's also really quite problematic and difficult to unpack how good evidence of what's gone wrong is useful for what we should be doing. So, yeah, I'm always interested when someone takes a bit of more sophisticated look at it. So let's uh, a little bit of background on incident investigation as it relates to this paper. And, and, and this information comes out of the literature review of, of the paper itself. And then we'll do as we always do and introduce the research and, and the conclusions. In this paper, sort of talks about, and like you said there, Drew, that incident investigation is a foundational tool of safety management, and and for a long time was the was the way that we developed our our theories of of how organisations can create safety. Um, but really, what we're about is we're about having a process where we collect information about something that was unplanned or unexpected or undesirable in the organisation. We collect information about it after the fact. We then determine the contributing factors, we develop some corrective measures, and we, we have some mechanisms to communicate and, and implement change in our organisation. So that's, a, I guess, what our listeners would understand to be a fairly standard incident investigation process. And Drew, I guess that there's a lot of commentary around incident investigations. We, we've probably five or six times on the podcast talked about investigations in a certain way, but for all that history around incident investigation and its centrality in uh, safety management, I think there's some fairly commonly accepted challenges that organizations face when it comes to good quality investigations and and good quality learning. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your thoughts around, I guess, the state of incident investigation across industry broadly? Sure. I guess there's a couple of points that are worth making. The first is that idea of investigation quality can hide so many different interpretations of what quality means. And often when people talk about wanting to improve the quality of investigations within their organization, they're talking about wanting to improve the standardization of reporting of incidents. Whereas I would personally see quality coming not from standardization, but quality coming from degree of surprise and usefulness of information that is gathered. The second thing, which I guess is not going to bode well in an episode that we've titled How Biased Are Incident Investigators?, is that I don't think bias is an appropriate word at all in this space. You know, all humans are subjective and have subjective experiences, but bias always implies that there is an objectively right answer. And when we're trying to describe something as complex as the causes of an accident, I don't think there are objectively right answers. But there are some answers which are fuller than others and more complete and more useful than other answers. And so usually when we talk about bias, we sort of are saying they've got it wrong. And I don't quite think that's quite the right way of looking at it. Yeah, I think for some bias insights, a visceral reaction, a little bit like using the word error. And, and I guess in, in, in this podcast, we'll, we'll talk about biases. And I think it's also useful as a framing point for thinking about how we might achieve those two things that you mentioned that I quite like there. So what, surpri what information surprised us and what information is useful? through the investigation process. And I guess some of the other challenges we know that exist in organizations that are, that are trying to improve the usefulness and the insights from their investigation processes are, you know, the culture of trust, uh, the time and production constraints around performing investigations, 
and you know investigations being single loop learning processes with no sort of feedback or or double loop learnings and drew you've got a better un- understanding of the incident investigation literature or body of literature than me but this paper claims that a lot of the studies into incident investigation that talks about a number of these limitations then go on to propose new analytical techniques and methodologies as a way of trying to say we can get better outcomes if we've got a better analytical process and i know a lot of people in industry ask me this very question which is you know what what do you think is the best analytical method for incident investigation and you know these researchers suggest that you know are somewhat surprised and maybe suggested an important understudied area of incident investigation processes is the initial data collection phase of the investigation. What are your thoughts on kind of the current literature body? I think they're even perhaps overselling the quality of the current body of literature. There is very, very little empirical study of accident investigations. There's a huge amount of work that uses accident reports as data or that makes commentary on poor quality of investigations or on distortions in investigations. But one of the challenges in interpreting accident reports is we don't really know from a scientific point of view how those reports are produced. Uh, you Like many safety practices, most people have only got experience within one organization and they're trying to map their understanding of the very small number of investigations they've seen to all these other investigation reports. And in the case of academics, academics often are involved in hardly any investigations at all. All they've got are the reports to go on and their own reinterpretation of those reports without really a good understanding of what goes on to produce those reports. So yeah, it's an area that is very ripe for any sort of research to contribute to our understanding of what actually goes on when investigators investigate. Yeah, it's a great point there about future research opportunities. It's it's one of the papers that when I when we were preparing for this episode, I thought, gee, I'd, 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 I'd like to do more research. I'd like to see or or at least see the outcomes of more research in this area. But really, these researchers are about what's happening at the front end of the investigation and particularly focused on the on the subjective and qualitative data collection process. So not so much about photos and training records and other forensic type evidence that might be gathered, but more about the process of interviewing people involved in the incident or witnesses to the incident. So Drew, should we introduce the paper? Yeah, let, let, let's talk about the paper itself. So David, I'm going to get you to actually introduce the authors though, uh, both because you know some of them and you're far better at pronouncing these names than I am. Uh, not, not so much. So five authors uh, for this paper, Shreja Thalaparetti, uh, Fred Sharat, Siddharth Bandari, Matthew Halliwell and Hayley Hansen. So I don't know all of these authors. However, uh, I do know Fred and Matthew's work reasonably well, at least their recent work in the last four or five years. So Fred Sharat, she authored the paper, The Zero Paradox. Uh, we reviewed this in episode 12 when we talked about zero harm. And for a long time, Drew, I had a look at the stats today because I wanted to validate I was going to claim it our most listened to episode and it was for a very long time. But the episode based on your research, um, episode 95, has about... 20% more downloads than our second most listened to episode. So some of our listeners have been doing a lot of sharing on uh, on your Take 5 research. <laughs> I don't know if you want to comment about that. Oh, I, I love the fact that our two most downloaded episodes are on probably the two topics where we have the strongest negative takes on the stuff that we're talking about. Well, let's just hope it's part of an organizational decluttering process. So Fred, she was a professor based in the UK, and I only just worked out in preparing for this episode that she's relocated to join the um, Construction Safety Research Alliance in the US. So um, congrats on that move, move Fred. And so Matt Hallowell, he's, um, I think he's the, the head or the director of the Construction Safety Research Alliance at uh, University of Colorado in Boulder. He was the lead author of the paper, The Statistical Invalidity of uh, Recordable Injury Rates, which we reviewed in episode 55. Not as many um, downloads as I'd expect on that one, Drew. Uh, so maybe people aren't quite ready to drop their recordable injury reporting. It, this is a very credible uh, research center with very credible professors and, and researchers doing investigation in the construction industry, which is the industry that this um, this alliance has been set up to research in. So I think, Drew, we can, and as we'll see in the methodological design of this this research, some very good research coming out of that centre. Yeah, a lot, a lot of playing around with novel research methods, as well as very highly industry-informed academic 
research, which I think is exactly what we want to be seeing in safety science. Yeah, great. So the paper title, uh, is, so the paper's titled Exploring Bias in Incident Investigations, an Empirical Examination Using Construction Case Studies. Um, Drew, it was published in the Journal of Safety Research. That's one of the journals that we published in during my PhD, a US-based journal, quite credible, I I think, and published online on the 31st of July, 2023. So it hasn't yet gone to print, but it's been available for the last two months or so. It's open access, so we can link to the paper in the show notes. And you know, so it, it is a really readable article, and we're seeing this with sort of very industry-focused uh, research centres that, you know, Drew, at least in my experience, more recent experience, that academic journal articles seem to be getting a little bit easier and easier uh, for people who are non-academic, I guess, non-academics to to review and make sense of. Yeah, there's been a real push in some fields to create even like rather than have paper abstracts, have industry ready and public ready summaries of papers as part of the publishing process. So we haven't quite got that far in safety science yet. But yeah, I always do appreciate when papers are written to be read rather than written to be published. Uh, but um, yeah, I think the immediate next thing we've got, though, is a paragraph you've extracted from their method, which says, fundamentally, this research adopts a realist ontology and post-positivistic epistemological position, which um, that, that's written squarely for academics or possibly for the peer reviewers. I don't know if it was in the original version of the paper. But yeah, it's rather interesting in that they've sort of sidestepped a lot of the complications around layers of reality when it comes to instant investigations by their method where they've created an artificial reality through a simulation. And post-positivistic basically just means that they're assuming that there is actually an objective truth out there, but that objective truth is not fully knowable and includes some social reality. But you see throughout the papers, they make like direct comments like bias, which implies that there is a right answer. And in some places, they actually say, you know, the interviewer was incorrect. That's the sort of thing that you need to believe that there is a correct version of reality before you can make those sorts of claims. So it's good to have the researchers sort of recognizing that philosophical position they're taking. I personally don't think it's quite the right approach for talking about accident investigation. And that will come a little bit into the interpretation of the findings. But it's nice and explicit. They're very clear about what they're doing and why they've taken the position that they have. Yeah, I think I think I'm a little bit more social, uh, more of a social social constructivist when it comes to incident investigations that um that, that we construct that reality. Look, I think I think for the purpose of setting up the simulation, like you said, and I think that that is written very much for the reviewers as someone who's tried to publish qualitative research and and probably our our qualitative research that we did publish in the Journal of Safety Research. They seem to accept that, but not all reviewers um, without. You know, making it sound a lot more empirical or quantitative by using those words. So let's let's get into the actual method for what they did, because this is really fun. So this is a role play simulation. So all of the research participants, so these are the people being studied, are industry practitioners with experience in instant investigation. So they bring those along to the research where they're faced with firstly a short video summary which is meant to simulate the phone call you would get telling you that an incident has happened and giving you basic facts. They then get the participants to write down their initial assumptions and thoughts about the incident and then they go in to conduct interviews. So they are faced with two people that they can interview. One of the people is a direct victim of the accident and the other person is a witness for the accident. In fact, these vi victim and witnesses are students who are acting, but they've been prepared both with scripts and with background information that they can improvise around to provide consistent stories to each participant. And they've got a couple of features built into the method to ensure that consistency, even if the people ask questions that aren't expected. And so the idea is that they're studying what questions these practitioners ask. So how they conduct the interviews, uh, what questions they start with, what they focus on. And then they're going to use that information from the interview to figure out whether the participants are displaying various types of bias. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the biases that they were looking for and that they found when we get into the results. David, you've often been a bit of a fan of simulation research, but you seem to be a little bit less of a fan of this one. 
Oh, I think not so much less of a fan. I, I think there's an opportunity to do real-world ethnography here in, in working with a number of organisations in their incident investigation space. And the researchers sort of talk about maybe maybe ethics and access might be a challenge, but you know, I'm 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 less convinced. I, I actually think it would make a really a really helpful embedded ethnography to put researchers inside investigation teams and for the purpose of observing and understanding how these investigations get 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 carried out in real organizations. I think I think we'd learn a lot and create a lot of opportunity for improvement. So I think these, this simulation is is sort of like this research we're talking about today is a is a really great pilot study, but I think I don't think it's a big step to take what we're talking about today and and do it in the real world. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting as a pilot. I would almost have preferred them to go the other way around to do the ethnography first, and then come at this simulation with a little bit more of a specific concrete question to try to ask. The beauty of the simulation and they display that in this study, is that you can directly compare a whole heap of research participants, but keep everything else the same. So, you know, you can tease apart. The problem with real-world investigations is each one only happens once. And so two different investigators might be investigating different facts. Of course, they're going to come to different answers. But if you hold the facts constant, then you can look at the behaviour of the investigators. And the sacrifice you make is you lose all of the contextual validity. As far as I know, most real-world investigations don't involve a solo person being told, here are the two people you're going to interview. You have to interview each one once, and then the investigation is over. There's a lot more communication and interaction and choices being made in a real investigation that I think feeds directly into some of these questions of bias that we're missing out on. Um, which is why I would like a more focused question that we could take advantage of this ability to compare that this study gives us. And I think the um, institutional influences as well are really important, the social and the political influences within the broader organisational context where the investigation is taking place sort of get isolated out and the investigator in the simulation gets an opportunity to perform an investigation how they how they think it should be performed. So in some ways, these results in the, in the um that we're going to talk about some of the challenges that we we learn through the simulation may even be far far worse in the real world when you add in a lot of other challenges that might make some of these biases even you know sharp even more but i guess one of the great things about this as a pilot study is it gives a lot of ammunition to the standard objections you know no one can say oh this was just one investigator did this because they had 34 practitioners no one can say it was just one company because they came from a bunch of different companies, a bunch of different sectors, presumably different training, different experiences. No one can say, oh, it's just lack of training or lack of experience because you know, on average, these people had 20 years of incident investigation experience. You know, this isn't taking 34 students and getting them to run the interviews and then talking about how biased they are. These are real investigators who are used to doing real investigations. Presumably in this simple scenario they're given, this should just be bread and butter, easy stuff to do really well. So any sort of negative behaviours they show in the simulation, we can guarantee are probably worse in the real world rather than better out in the real world. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. So, so a couple of comments on the on on the method there, just to land a few points, and we'll get on to the to the findings. So you're right, you're 34 experienced investigators, average of 20 years of investigation experience. It was a purpose sampling technique. So the researchers intentionally went out to find experienced industry-based investigators as, as a way of attempting to make the results more generalizable to the investigator population. There was two incident stories and those 34 participants were randomly assigned to one of the two case studies. The same students, like you said, Drew, were doing the acting in all of these. Uh, they had their script. They had their uh, background information. So they could answer any question that the investigator threw at them. And if the investigator threw a question and they had to make up an answer on the spot, then after that interview, that answer was recorded. So if the same question came up another time in a subsequent participant or with a subsequent participant, then the same answer was given. So they built, they continued to build the script out through the course to make sure that the same answers were being provided in the same way to the same questions. And, and Drew, they were able, it sounds like they were able to go back and forward. So if they interviewed the witness, they could then go back and interview the injured person again. If they learned something else, they could then go back and interview the witness. It, it looked like they had the opportunity to go and do that if they, if they wanted to. And so there was two scenarios. One was called the staircase incident and one was called the concrete form incident. Now, it's probably not worth going through these in, in total detail, Drew, but one involved a, a staircase collapsing in a residential home. 
and one involved a laborer on a on a construction project who was basically slicing cardboard stripping around a light pole using a utility knife and they injured their their hand i think actually the, the the supervisor stopped them using the knife and got them to use a hammer instead and they accidentally hit the supervisor with the hammer got it sorry i was trying to quickly quickly read the scenario so you got these two different scenarios going randomly assigned and like drew said at the start the participants got a two-minute video summary, and then they got an opportunity to basically just ask questions of, of the two participants. And at the end, they were debriefed by the lead researcher about, you know, basically what they what they think caused the incident, or what were the contributing factors to the incident. In terms of analysis, basically they were specifically looking for known biases. So they didn't come into this just asking you just random questions about what's happening. They're looking for biases, but then they're looking then for specific examples and patterns and details of those broad categories of bias. So you know, it shouldn't surprise you that they found bias. That's not, that was exactly what they were looking for. But what's interesting is the number of people who displayed these biases and how those biases manifested. So David, should we go through the sort of broad themes that they found? Yeah, look, uh, because people can read the method there. I'd only just mention that the researchers did what, what I actually quite like is they, they, they just talked about the limitations of, of the, the research and, and what they tried to do in the design of the research to limit the negative impacts of those limitations. And I think that's, that's always good when the research team reflects on, you know, obviously what, what the research can and can't tell us due to the design. But let's talk about the themes. There's, there's, there's six or seven themes out of the research. So do you want to get us started on that? Okay, so so the first one is the idea of what you look for is what you find, or the technical name for that, confirmation bias. So to measure this, they asked each participant before they did the interviews what contributing factors they thought were likely to be in the accident. And then what they noticed is a lot of the interviewers asked questions that were trying to confirm their initial guess at what the factors were. So for example, if they thought the problem was that the formwork wasn't stable, then they would ask questions like, was the formwork stable? (laughs) So they're looking for confirmation of what they suspected was there, rather than broadening out and looking for new information about causes that they weren't already suspecting. Now, David, I don't know about you, what actually surprised me was how few interviewers this applied to. So so they said 30% of interviews were structured around those initial assumptions. And yeah, I'm actually surprised that 70% weren't, that 70% sort of said, oh, here are my initial assumptions, but then were able to put, completely put those aside and ask more open questions in the interviews. So we'd say like, you wouldn't say it was a rare mistake, but it certainly wasn't the majority of people were showing that sort of confirmation bias. Yeah, so Drew, how I interpreted that is that, you know, 30% of the, the interviewers basically structured their interview and and in some cases their whole interview around their assumptions. I, I suspect in other cases maybe it showed up from time to time, but maybe they asked more open questions at the start, like can you please just can you give me a summary of what happened in, in your opinion? You know, maybe 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 they 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 didn't structure their their interview around their assumptions. Um one of the interesting things that I also saw in here was that most participants, and they didn't tell us how many, but most participants did not ask any questions to challenge their personal notions of what may have happened. So this idea that we seek out disconfirming evidence, or we we actually try to find things that invalidate the way that we're currently thinking about the problem, um, most in, most investigators didn't do that. And I think that was the telling point in this part of the data for me, Drew, that I don't think it's natural for incident investigators to go and actually try to disprove their own their own assumptions. David, to be honest, that's one where I'm a little bit sceptical and I don't fully trust the researchers enough here. I, w- I want to see the raw data because I know that when I do research interviews myself, if I'm trying to find disconfirming evidence, I come at it sideways. So it won't be explicit in my question that I'm looking for disconfirming evidence. I'm asking a question that opens up a space that if that disconfirming evidence is there, then the person I'm interviewing will be likely to say it. And so, yeah, that, that's one where you sort of really want to see the original data from the interviews to know how they were interpreting and coding some of these things that the investigators were doing. I absolutely believe the answer. I absolutely believe them that that is what was going on, but I would like to actually sort of see the evidence for myself for that one. 
Um, I think it's actually really quite subtle how you go about looking for disconfirming evidence in a real interview. And I think, Drew, for each of these six themes or so we're going to talk about, you know, they, they, they probably deserve you know, a deeper analysis for exactly how this theme shows up and, and, and in the ways that you said, because you could now take this confirmation bias theme and go back into the at least 68 transcripts from, you know, 34 participants and specifically try to go really deep on, on just confirmation bias and maybe answer those questions. So Drew, if you really want me to reach out and see if I can get your copies of the transcripts, I'm, I'm sure maybe we could arrange it if you in your spare time, in your spare time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a, in a simulation, what I'd really like to do there would be ethnomethodological analysis, which is have them take me back through the tape recording of their interview and explain to me while we watch the tape together what they were trying to do at each stage. I think that would be very interesting, but you know, that, that's beyond this pilot study that they've done. That's not a criticism of what they did. It's, that would be the next step. What I found, like, now this one is non-controversial. They said 10% of the participants asked leading questions. And that's not a question of interpretation. It's really easy to tell in an interview transcript what, what's a leading question. And it's a real, like, training no-no in interviews. <laughs> so that one both sort of doesn't surprise me, but is also like a big red flag for confirmation bias that so many people were asking leading questions. You, that's what police do when they want to get evidence of you confessing. <laughs> It's not what investigators do when they want to find out what happened and disconfirm their previous assumptions. Yeah, Drew, in the staircase case study, there was very explicit um, production pressure and and resource constraint where two of the workers had been fired for, for safety breaches and one of the workers were on their own and the client was coming to inspect the completion of the work that afternoon. And, and so, you know, questions from the investigators like, oh, so you were rushing to complete the stairs. Do you feel that that pressure affected you? Kind of the only scripted answer there is to just say yes. So, Drew, theme number two, and I really like the way that they, they label these vices, but that's why they did that, this fundamental attribution error. And, you know, the headline finding is that two-thirds or 21 out of the 34 interviewers stated in their post-interview that they felt that the personal characteristics of the people involved and their resulting behaviours contributed to the incident. So the interviewers relied on character to make judgments about what led to the incident occurring. So we are we are looking at what was it about the person that made them do that? Which says a lot about the quality of the acting of the students in this simulation. That these like hardened industrial practitioners went away making character judgments against the characters who were being played by the um, students. This one's kind of interesting, and this comes back to the post-positivist approach. Because, like, David, I, I would guess that neither you nor I would be very comfortable with instant investigations which blame the individuals, their personal characteristics and their behaviours. But that's not a question of absolute truth. You know, that, that's the old structure versus agency debate where both structure and agency are real and matter. It's just a question of which you focus on. So I don't think it's, it's absolutely a systematic cognitive tendency but calling it an error, I think, is a little bit severe here. But, you know, fair to say, yes, most of them did focus on personal characteristics rather than structural things. Yeah, and I guess I guess we see this in, in investigations in, in industry, right, where in this case the researchers sort of saw behaviour, investigators attributing behaviour to personality rather than considering the situational context of the work and their surroundings. So, you know, one example in one of the things, the person put their hand in there because they're an impulsive or arrogant person. You know, maybe as 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 opposed to you know the person put their hand in there just like anyone else would because of the explicit time pressure to to perform the task. So I think I think that the 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 red flag, if you like, here was the fact that it was two thirds. Drew, that when when asked at the debrief by the researchers, you know, what do you think contributed to the accidents? Two thirds of people, you know, started to list you know judgments about the characters of the the char the characters involved in the event. Yeah, and I guess particularly because these two examples that they've picked out are filled with systemic and structural factors that could have been focused on instead. <laughs> there, there are you know, not stories where there was no explanation available other than someone misbehaved. So, Drew, theme number three, nothing surprises me anymore. This is this past experience bias, and you mentioned at the start of the episode about investigation quality being a little bit about what did we find out that surprised us. So do you want to talk a little bit about this, this theme? Yeah, so, so the idea here is something that has been observed with incident investigations before, which is the investigators are interpreting the incidents in light of their previous similar experience to the point where they're almost guaranteed not to find anything new. 
so they're saying, okay, I've seen this happen before. When it happened before, this is what I thought the cause was. Therefore, that must be the cause this time as well. So the investigation reproduces their prior assumptions from prior investigations. And there was pretty clear evidence of this happening, particularly with the debriefing of the people after the exercise. But also some hints from like actual questions that people asked in the interviews, where it's almost like the investigator is trying to explain to the people they're interviewing what the cause is, rather than finding out from the people they're interviewing what the cause is. Yeah, by, So again, um, not, not surprising, but worrying when you think of what makes a good investigation. Yeah, and I think in, in that language, like, you know, starting a question in the interview with the statement, I've seen this before, here's how it can happen. Can you can you tell me how 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 you think it happened? And you know, I think I think one of the challenges here is maybe the more experienced you get at incident investigations, the more incidents you see, um, maybe the stronger that this this gets. And, you know, I I have heard people in the industry say this to me that, you know, oh, there's nothing you know, there's no new problems in safety. We've seen them all before. So I think that's a really interesting one for us to think about how, how do we, how do we separate ourselves? How do we look at every, how do we look at every incident with a, with a fresh set of eyes is, is a real challenge. So theme four, they called getting stuck somewhere, which they've linked to the idea of anchoring bias. There are actually a couple of different forms of anchoring bias. The one they're talking about here is sort of akin more to tunnel vision which is where you find one thing to focus on and then you just stay stuck focusing on that one thing without being able to sort of set it aside and move on to something else. Yeah, Drew, and I guess I guess sort of a, a statement in here uh, that you know, there's an infinite number of things to consider when we're thinking about what may have contributed to you know, an incident in a sort of a complex work situation, even such as these, like a staircase falling down or someone getting hit with a hammer. So many human process, technical aspects of the work, uh, all that necessitate sense-making processes around. And and at this point in, in the research, sort of 18 of the 34, so more than half fixated on just one aspect of the incident. So as a sort of, and in the researcher's opinion, to the detriment of the process as a whole. So I found one thing, you know, the structural instability of the stairs, and I'll just, that's clearly the most important contributing factor. And that's all we're going to talk about during the, during the interview. Yeah, this is another one where I would really like to see the actual recordings of the interviews because the examples they give of anchoring bias seem equally explainable by lack of interview skill, where the person giving the interview is sort of stuck at a point in the interview and doesn't know where to go from there and doesn't have the interview tools to step back from their current line of questioning to move the conversation on to somewhere else, which is a real social skill that a lot of untrained interviewers sort of lack because it's quite an artificial thing to do. Um, And it may be that outside the artificial constraints of the simulation, they're better at that. Although what we see from interview, uh, sorry, from investigation reports absolutely confirms this idea of anchoring bias that entire organizations get anchored on single explanations across multiple investigations. So, yeah, I'm inclined to, even though there's some sort of suspicions there about exactly how they got this conclusion, I, I don't doubt the conclusion that it's a real thing that's happening. Yeah, and in around this this confirmation bias and, and anchoring bias uh, themes as well, that's where I think in the in in real organisations with, with real investigations, there are a lot more organizational aspects to anchor around. So I'd, I'd love to know the extent to which the known problems in the organization or the known strategic improvement areas in the organization then show up in investigation reports after they've been determined to be a really important strategy for the organization um, as a reinforcement of kind of like the weaknesses in the organization, the validation of the strategy and so on. So I think I think there'd be some really interesting ways that these buyers show up, not just in the investigator's mindset, but in the organization's safety narrative at that point in time. Yep. So, so theme five is it was preventable. So this is the idea of hindsight bias. They say this showed up in nine of the participants out of 34, which is not a lot. But remember, we're just talking about the interviews here. We're not talking about the reports. So in a real investigation, there would be many more opportunities to display hindsight bias than they had here. So this is nine people just from the interviews and the conversation with the researcher afterwards are already establishing these counterfactuals and talking about what they would have done and how they would have prevented the accident. 
So they presumably that's like on their mind as they're interviewing is this alternate picture of reality that is shaping the way they're looking at what happened. Yeah. So this idea that this incident's preventable, uh, the investigator forms a view about how it could be prevented, and I guess it leads them to to not fully explore the situation around the incident, to uh, to just direct conversations towards the solutions that they've got for for the problem. And I guess the you know quote that I always like is you know for every complex problem there's a simple solution that's wrong. And I think that's the point that the researchers are making here, that uh, when we form the view that an incident is preventable, then we sort of stop looking for broader uh, influences on the event. It's, it's really interesting that we can see at this like really early stage of the investigation, you can imagine this final report, which says, okay, this accident was caused by failing to completely shut off the staircase. I recommend that we put in place procedures that staircases be shut off with signs across them saying that they're not usable. And that looks very naturally like it comes out of the investigation and out of what happened. But this is revealing that the investigator, at the very start, that's what they would have done. And so they've reproduced through the interview and the investigation their own way of doing things that they knew about before the accident even happened. Yeah, Drew. So so theme, I like that. So theme six, taking sides and sticking to them. This is conservatism in belief revision. So I guess this is really the, the ability of the person to change their mind during an investigation process. So, you know, people have their story and and also to to accept that there's different truths with different people in the investigation. So people have their stories. There was two people interviewed, a witness and an injured person for each of these scenarios. They might or might not have had different views about certain aspects. And essentially, we might expect the role of the investigator to remain objective to those involved. But what we did see in 23 of the 34 is that the investigator took sides. You know, where there was a discrepancy between something the injured person and the witness was saying, the investigator would take a side and favoured either one of those two interviewees and, you know, then therefore just basically made conclusions and judgments, you know, based on which side they wanted to take. And th- this is even more extreme than it sounds because we're talking about, I, I should mention, they, they subtly seeded contradictions into these scenarios. So that the two witnesses have slightly different versions of facts. And it's not that the investigators were saying, like, this person said this and that other person said this, and I believe this person. It's that they were talking about one person's version as if it was the facts. So, you know, for example, in one case, one of the witnesses said that they had told something to the other person, and the other person said they'd not been told. And the person was just talking as if it was, like, obvious that the person had been told. You know, they, they'd just t- fully taken on board one version of reality. And it's interesting that it was fairly consistently, you know, the version of reality that they encountered first. So they, once they'd formed an opinion, contradictory evidence was just seen as not real and not, not salient or interesting. Yeah, Andrew, I think, I think we go back 25 years or maybe even further, you can, you can tell me, but you know, Richard Cook and Dave Woods wrote a paper titled, you know, The Tale of Two Stories, where they started introducing this idea of multiple truths in, in incident investigations. I think early 2000s, that paper was drafted, if not late 1990s. So Drew, the last conclusion uh, before we might talk about some practical takeaways was that you know, they, they titled it Theme 7, which was bigger than the sum of the parts, which was about biases working together. And they referred to some work in 2006 around a theory of combined cognitive bias hypotheses. And basically, this was that some of these hypotheses, some of these biases, sorry, can, can combine and work together in ways that actually makes the total effect greater than, than any of them um, individually. So if you become anchored early on in the conversation, then you go and you know, seek out information that confirms, you know, confirmation bias around that. And then you've got this conservatism in belief revision and a tendency to favor the person who aligns with your perspective on the situation. So you can see how these biases can kind of work together to, I guess, really just drive a drive an outcome of the investigation towards the investigator's initial position. So, so, so David, before we move directly on to takeaways, I, I want to mention a little bit about the relationship between this research and the common solutions that organizations try to have to improve their investigations. So very often people are looking for investigation techniques or frameworks or models. And that's often what academics love providing as well, is like new accident models or you know, human error classification models or human factors models that give us a bunch of factors. And what this research points out very, very clearly is 
there's almost no opportunity for that model to fix the fundamental problems in the process. If the model gets applied after these initial interviews, it's way too late because your data has already been heavily, heavily shaped by the cognitive processes, which includes what questions were asked. So, you know, literally what data was collected to go into the model. And if you have your model before you go into the interview, well, this just shows how people already latch on to particular parts of that model and it then guides all your investigation again. So, you know, you might get something that is a little bit more standardized in its reporting if you start with a model, but it's absolutely not going to fix any of these cognitive problems. You know, you're populating the model with bad data. Yeah, it's a great point, Drew. I think we, and, and, and in talking with, with people in industry around this topic, incident investigation and incident investigation quality, you know, 80% of the conversation is around that uh, causal classification taxonomy. So whether it's ICAM or essential factors or Taproot or ASIMAP or Stamp or, or whatever whatever it is, we 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 feel like there's a methodology that's going to solve these problems. But the researchers in the uh, introduction to this paper sort of talk about the process is garbage in, garbage out, right? So if we if we actually don't understand how to get uh, a good data collection process, then it really doesn't matter what happens after that because the outcomes of the investigation have already been shaped. And so if we have this attribution error to the individual based on personal characteristics, then of course, if we apply a ICAM PIPO framework, we're going to get fixated on the people factors. Drew, I think it's a really good point. You know, what do we know the problem we're trying to fix to improve our quality of investigations, which takes us nicely into into practical ideas. Okay. Takeaway number one, go for it. Yeah. So so I thought one of the initial ones is we talk a lot when we talk about risk assessment, or I think uh, one of our episodes, Drew, on risk assessment, you were quite you know, you know, strong that we need to document all of our assumptions in a risk assessment, what frame the, the decisions that we made through the risk assessment process. I think it's really important before the commencement of data collection that the investigator or the investigation team does the process that was uh, done in this research, which actually writes down what their initial assumptions and, and causal ideas are for the investigation and, and really document those, gives us the opportunity one, for the investigation team to be mindful of their preconceived ideas through the process, and also gives us the opportunity at the end of the investigation to do what the researchers did here, which is look at what the investigators went in with, and did they come out with exactly the same thing? So I really like that. It's a common misunderstanding to believe that the way to avoid bias is to try to be unbiased. And I bet we've got listeners who are saying, oh, but when I do investigations, I go in with an open mind. And We've got lots and lots of evidence that that doesn't work. And this is one of the things that gets hammered in the social sciences. Why all accident investigators should have arts degrees, not engineering degrees, is the idea that you avoid bias by being open, transparent, and understanding of your own position. No one is free of subjectivity. So you've got to be reflexive. You've got to know where you're coming from, and you've got to work with that. You're claiming that you've got an open book, you've got an open mind. That's just deceiving yourself. Understanding, oh, my initial assumption here is that the person probably stuffed up. Okay, I can recognize that. I can write it down. I can realize, okay, if I come out of this investigation just believing the person's stuffed up, I've got moved nowhere. That's something I've got to be conscious of, my own belief. And I've got to test that and challenge it and look for other explanations. And you can only do that if you're honest up front about what your preconceptions already are. Yeah, I like that, Drew. Um, thanks for explaining that. And you had me during my PhD because I was a safety professional and quite an experienced safety professional uh, researching the role of safety professionals in organization. And, and you had me write, which was published in my final thesis, a reflective um, piece about my experience as a safety professional, what I believed about the profession, where I saw the value of the profession, what I saw as the challenges, and 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 really all of the things that I was researching. But before I even did any of the research, we wrote pages and well, I wrote pages and pages, which was actually quite cathartic, really. But pages and pages of you know what I initially felt, so that uh, we could you know check in whether or not I was actually looking at the data or just you know looking at what I already thought. So the second one you've written down here, David, which I agree with absolutely, is to focus on local rationality. So to go into the investigation with the presumption that it made sense for everyone to do what they did. No one was insane, no one was stupid, no one was malicious. So our job is to find out why it made sense to them. Um, and even if that is like factually wrong, 
even if there are stupid people out there, even if there are malicious people out there, even if there are crazy people out there, that's not actually helpful in an investigation to reach those conclusions because it doesn't lead to any organisational action. So methodologically, let's just assume it made sense to people because that's what's going to help the next person in that same situation. And I think, Drew, you've said to me when I've asked you previously about how would you think about the quality of investigation, you've said to me where the investigator can advocate that it made perfect sense for everyone to do everything exactly as they did it. And I'm reminded here of Diane Bourne's book, The Challenger Launch Decision, which was you know, based on a almost decade-long historical ethnography into the Challenger launch decision. And in that, she makes that point that, you know, there was a lot going on in there, but everyone acted in ways that made exact sense to them. And anyone else in the position of all of the people in NASA at the time would have made decisions in exactly the same way um, based on the situation. So this idea here is if, if someone else in that situation can do the same thing, then there's no point trying to fix the person. Now, now obviously, there's a limitation to that approach, which is you do it to the extent that Vaughan did it or that I do it. And you come to believe that the entire universe is inevitable and unchanging, that no one could have prevented the accident because everything everyone did made sense in context. But I think the reality is safety people particularly have got such an instinct to change and fix things and to problematize things. You don't really need to worry about accidentally not finding problems and fixable things. The thing to worry about is at the other extreme. So yeah, we're pushing you to one extreme, but we're pushing you probably against where most people's tendencies lie. Right. So Drew, do you want to go on to the third one? Okay. So the third one I've got here is, and this is a point they make throughout the paper, a lot of these problems don't require some fundamental rewiring of the brain to stop investigators being biased or to stop them having cognitive distortions. A lot of them come down to interview techniques that are conscious of the way people think and conscious of getting around some of those problems. So I think we do a lot to sort of train people in safety and safety models, but we don't do a lot of actual training in how to do interviews. And when people do have training, they've often come in from environments like the police where it's a totally different type of interview with different objectives. And so the skills are actually quite counterintuitive. Um, you, one example there is how do you avoid confirmation bias? You structure your interview so you start with open questions, leading gradually towards closed, clarifying questions. You, that's a skill that you can learn. And you can look in an interview and see whether someone has done that and give them advice for next time. And say, look, the reason you got this answer is because you asked it as a closed question up front. If you'd asked a more open question, you wouldn't have been locked in. Another like basic one is just don't ask explicit leading questions. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interview skill thing. It takes training, it takes practice, it takes good understanding of exactly what is and isn't a leading question, but it's trainable. Another one that gets around a lot of the things here is just not to ask questions. <laughs> really good interviewers don't ask nearly as many questions as you might think they do. And that is a hard skill, but it is a learnable and trainable skill, is to train people in not asking questions. Yeah, the less you ask questions, the less you have the opportunity to accidentally shape the interview through any of these biases because you're not leading the interview. The person you're interviewing is leading it with their experiences, which is what you're trying to capture. So Drew, I then, I then came up with a list of six questions for the six different sort of sort of themes and I haven't run this by you, so good to, good to get a live check on, on what you think. But I guess I just thought that you know, if, if you're looking at an instant investigation, you get an opportunity to have a conversation with the investigator. Here might be six questions that you could ask them to just sort of think about how much their own their own bias has impacted the the investigation outcome. So the first is, you know, a question like, "What did you learn that you didn't know before the investigation?" Which is, you know, what did you learn? So did you just confirm everything you already knew, or did you learn something new? That, that's Drew's first law of accident investigation, David, that you've reproduced there, which is in order for the organization to learn from an investigation, the investigator themselves must increase their knowledge. So if the investigator hasn't learned something, the investigation can't learn something. So hopefully the investigator can surprise you with all these amazing things that they've, they've learned about the organization. The second question is simply, why did it make sense for the person to do what they did? You know, can the, investi the investigator advocate for the decisions and the actions of the people involved? from that, that uh, attribution error bias. The third one, Drew, you mentioned at the very start, um, I had in here um, before you mentioned that, uh, just for our listeners, um, the third was what surprised you during the investigation? So this is, an, you know, this is the extent to which the investigator was genuinely surprised. So I know you like that one, Drew, so I'll move on. 
Um, number four, so what other possible things could have contributed to the incident? So if we're anchoring around the things that we think did, asking the investigator, well, if those things, you know, say they turned out to be wrong, what other things, you know, did you dismiss during the course of the incident investigation and see how long their list is of other things that they considered? Thoughts? No, I, I love that question. That's like just a deliberate invitation to broaden out your explanations. I'd even love that as an interview question for an accident is, what else might have contributed that you haven't told me? Yeah. And so then the fifth one about not having simple solutions to complex problems is, you know, asking investigator, what would make avoiding this incident in the future extremely difficult? So this idea that if we just sign the stairs, it'd be fine, you know, actually have them go, well, well no, no, no. What would make avoiding this genuinely really difficult? And then I think the last thing is really just to ask that question about the multiple stories, you know, asking investigators, you know, what were the differences and the discrepancies in the in the opinions and and how did you sort of sense make through that through that process? So I think Drew, I think it is possible for us to, like you said, it is possible to train people in 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 doing good data collection. I think this research is kind of really interesting and and useful framing for for real organizations. And um I think you can strengthen your process without throwing out all of your existing methodology. Yeah, no, I, I really like those six questions you've got there. And, and that would be great just for a feedback cycle around any investigation process is let people do what they're currently doing, ask them that question and where they struggle, they will sort of naturally be prompted next time to come up with a better answer for you because they know you're going to ask that question again next time. So just building that into the feedback cycle, I think would improve any organization's investigations. So Drew, anything you want to add before we, before we wrap? Give us a pet topic of yours. No, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable and you've in fact handed it to me. So I get to say the question we asked this week was how biased are instant investigators? And the answer, I guess, is very. And we all are as, as human beings. So it, but it does mean that we should probably worry more about the data collection phase of, of our investigations more than the causal analysis methodology and taxonomy that we, we concern ourselves with. Here, here. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. We normally say send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. But David, you have a new platform that we can talk and discuss podcast episodes on. Do you want to say a quick word? Yeah, we do. So so Safety Exchange uh, launched uh, last week or, or two weeks ago at the time that this episode will go out. Uh, you can go to safety.exchange or you can download the Safety Exchange app. app and what I've really tried to or what we've tried to put together is a space for the global safety community to to engage and 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 collaborate. We know that LinkedIn and other social media platforms are becoming increasingly less psychologically safe for the community to um you know to learn from each other. So it's a it's a mass social experiment, Drew. But yes, there is a space for the safety work podcast, and each episode will be going up there. And Drew and I are going to host a safety science space on the platform. So. Yeah, I'd love you to come across and join us there. 